This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We learned, now that the temple is destroyed, the only thing that could house Hashem, the only thing that Hashem could, could reside, is in the Torah. And it says, specifically, in the four cubits of Halacha, alone. So the question is, why Halacha? Any part of Torah. Why specifically Halacha? The laws of Torah. You know, the bottom line, the result, the, after all the discussion, what's the bottom line? What is the ruling? What is the halakha? What is the law? So why specifically does it say that where does Hashem reside presently? How do we draw Hashem's light into the world today? It's specifically by studying the Torah, but within the Torah, studying halakha. And that's what he's going to explain now. Page 810, the second paragraph. And the 613 commandments of the Torah, together with the seven commandments of our rabbis, combine the total numerical equivalent of Ketan, crown, which is the supernal will. Will is called crown, for like a crown, it encompasses the head and brain. Igrit HaKodesh, where this is discussed at length. There are 613 mitzvah, but there are... 620 letters 620 letters in the Ten Commandments so that represents that's the numerical value of Keser Keser is crown 613 mitzvot plus the seven rabbinic mitzvot the mitzvot in which we make a blessing the seven rabbinic mitzvot which we make a blessing like now it's coming up Purim we had Hanukkah Washing your hands, lighting the candles, making blessings, saying the hallow, the Erev. So the seven rabbinic blessings, the, um, together is 620, and Keser represents the crown. Crown hovers over the head, it's above the head. It transcends the brain. The brain represents what's internal, the understanding, the comprehension. But the kasha that transcends the brain, that's the will. Because the will is the source of the brain. That's why you see that Talmud says a person should study a subject that you enjoy. Because if you enjoy the subject and you want to study it, you're motivated, you're driven to study it, it will give your brain, it will strengthen your brain. Your brain will have the ability to understand it. You know, if you want something very badly, it influences the brain because the will, that's your soul. 
That's an expression of your soul. And the, that's the source of the brain. It transcends the brain. So the will is stronger than the mind. And if you want something, the mind will, it will influence the mind to act accordingly. That's why we find very interesting in the Torah, in the beginning, in Genesis, right at the beginning, it says Hashem wanted to destroy the world, the flood. Why? Because a person is born with a, naturally is born with an evil inclination. So it's like man is hopelessly corrupt. So Hashem says, let me destroy the world. Then you go to the next Torah reading in Noah, after the flood. Hashem made a covenant promising that I'll never destroy the world. With a rainbow. It always reminds him that he's not going to destroy the world. Why? The same reason. <laughs> because a person is evil. And if therefore, if Hashem did not, would not make a covenant, would not swear that he's never going to destroy the world, the world would be destroyed. So that's a reason why he's going to promise not to destroy the world. So how can you have the same reason for two opposite, one, the same reason to destroy the world and the same reason not to destroy the world? So obviously reason, the brain, the mind is a very fragile thing. It's the will that bends the mind. It's the will that really determines. When God wanted to destroy the world, so every reason suddenly started to explain, every reason explained and justified that, that decision. You see, man is so evil, let's destroy him. When God decided not to destroy the world, that same reasoning now becomes a reason not to destroy the world. So you see the power of will over, over intellect, over logic, over intellect. Because the will is so much more powerful. The will is the crown that's above the head. It's superior to the head. It sits on top of the head. It transcends the mind. And the mind, that's the source of the mind. And that's why the will can influence the mind to go in this direction, that direction. And if you really, people who are born with very... Um, limited abilities, very limited talent. But they had a drive, a hunger, desire to learn. And they became the biggest geniuses. They just broke their head. They just applied themselves and applied themselves and wouldn't give up. And just until they developed the most impressive minds, only because of their willpower. They had such a strong willpower, such a strong determination. They were so stubborn, nothing would deter them. That even though they had heads of, of stone, they just drilled and drilled and drilled until they developed the most powerful brains. So that's the power of will. Will, that's the crown. So the mitzvah, the, the, the 613 mitzvah represents the crown, the will of Hashem. What Hashem desires. And from there, you have the Torah. The Torah explains the reasoning behind the mitzvah. But the, but the mitzvah itself, the keser, this is the will of Hashem. And this is the idea of halacha. What is halacha? Halacha, you have the Torah, you have the different reasons, you have the arguments, different reasons, different approaches. But halacha is how we're supposed to behave practically. What does Hashem want, me, want of me? In the real world, in my day-to-day life, how am I supposed to be? There are many opinions and many different approaches, and they're all valid. And, but the bottom line is, 
what does Hashem want of me? That's will. And that is only one halacha. There are many approaches. And every approach has a legitimate argument and logic and reasoning. And we can learn from every approach. But then you have Allah. Allah is, is decisive. Allah is one way. Allah is like Hillel, not like Shammah. You have to do it this way, and not the other way. This is what Hashem wants of you. If you do the opposite, if you do Shammah, but I'm following Torah. It's an opinion in Torah. It's a valid opinion in Torah. It's a legitimate opinion in Torah. It's holy. But it's not what Hashem wants from you. It's very nice. But that's not what Hashem wants of you. Hashem wants your behavior to behave in this way, not in the other way. So this is will. This is halacha. This is much deeper than the rest of the Torah. So the crown of the Torah. The crown of the Torah is Allah. Because this expresses the will of Hashem. After all the discussion, the bottom line is, that's why before a rabbi gives a verdict, the rabbi trembles. Because when you come to a rabbi to ask a question of Torah, you're not asking him what his personal opinion is. With all due respect, Moses himself, frankly, it's very nice, his personal opinion, but that's not why we come to Moses. We come to Moses to ask him, what does Hashem want? How would Hashem want me to behave at this moment? And we're confident that the answers are in the Torah. The rabbi is trained to derive the right answer from the Torah. But the rabbi trembles because he has to give the truth. He has to represent Hashem. What would Hashem say if you're able to speak to Hashem? What would Hashem want of me at this moment? What is the right thing to do? So if I come up with the wrong answer, I'm representing Hashem. He's not coming to ask what a human being thinks. He's coming to ask what Hashem thinks. What Hashem wants of me at this moment. So even though the rabbi knows, is familiar with the material, he'll rethink the whole thing and and he'll go very deep because he, he has to tell the truth. He's representing Hashem. How can a finite human being be so truthful and be accurate and really figure out what Hashem would really want? So he has to really apply himself, put his ego on the side, and really try to find and break his head. Like, is this the real, is this for real? Or is this a nice, interesting you know, explanation, but I'm, the guy is not here for, to hear my interesting explanations. He's here to hear the emiss. What is the truth? Is this really what the Torah says? Is this really what Rashi says? Is this really what, what the commentary says? Is this really what the Code of Jewish Law says? He has to break his head and he has to figure it out and he has to... So, it, it's, it's... He approaches it with trepidation, with awe. And when the rabbi approaches it with trepidation and awe, he'll have the help of Hashem. Hashem will help and guide him that he'll come up with a real answer. The beautiful story, Rabbi Yecheskel Landos, known as the Nod of Yehuda, one of the greatest rabbis in Eastern Europe. So, he was very young when he became rabbi of Prague. And uh, they tested him. You know, this was a major city with great rabbis and scholars. And here they were going to have a very young rabbi lead them and uh, you know they they put him through the and he answered all their questions brilliantly one answer one question he did not answer correctly 
And they confronted him. And his response was, because this is not a real question. This was just a trick question. All the other questions he asked me were real-life questions. So when the rabbi gives a real-life question, he has help from Hashem, that he's not going to make a mistake. This was a trick question. Okay, so I'm a human being. Hashem doesn't have to help me that everything I say, everything that leaves my mouth has to be accurate and 100% and to the point and brilliant and real, genuine. You asked me a trick question, so I didn't know. It's not... So that's how we come to a rabbi who's God-fearing, who believes in the Torah, and whose heart is filled with trepidation because he's representing Hashem, and he has to say, what would Hashem want me to do at this moment? You know, so you have, to, you have to, how can I figure out what Hashem wants? You see, you really have to be honest and genuine. You have to break your head. And, and, and the rabbi is in fear and trepidation. It doesn't matter if it's a million-dollar case or if it's a case that deals with a penny. It's not, what's at stake here is, am I am representing Hashem. Is this the real answer? Is this what Hashem wants? It's a beautiful story of the Tzemot Tzedek, the grandson of the Alter Rebbe, who was the third Lubavitcher Rebbe. There was a question you know, in those days, a lot of questions had to do with chickens and cows. Are they kosher or not kosher? You know, if you saved up some money, you know, to, to, to buy a chicken or especially a cow. And then the shochet, the slaughterer, would slaughter it and say, it's not kosher. It was a disaster. <laughs> you know, this was, this was your life savings you saved up for the last month or three months. And so they would come to the rabbi, and any rabbi worth his salt would try his best to try to see if there's any way that it is kosher. Anyway, so there was a, a chicken, I think it was slaughtered, or a cow was slaughtered for the Rebbe's house. And there was a question. And they came to the rabbi, and the rabbi said, it's not kosher. The rabbi in Lubavitch, a little city in Lubavitch. So they came home, and they said, the rabbi says it's not kosher. Well, the Tzemach Tzedek says, well... Let me take a look. Let me see. And he looked. And he calls the rabbi in. And he's sitting there with all his children. (laughs) You know, all this. And he starts arguing with the rabbi. He says, why do you say it's not kosher? I looked at it, and it's kosher. And the rabbi says, no, it's not kosher. (laughs) And the rabbi starts overwhelming him with all these proofs, and the Talmud, and halachic rulings and, and you know there was no match I mean, you know, this, <laughs> it was like Einstein arguing with a, a, four year, a fourth grade physics professor but the rabbi got up and he says I am the rabbi in town and I say it's not kosher and he walked out and the tzemotzedek turns to his children and he says you think this fool is not right <laughs> he's right and he took out, he took out one of the halachic rulers who said what this Jew said. This Jew didn't have this, the depth of scholarship that he even knew. But he says, so the children were surprised how the, the Rebbe didn't, and he knew. He says, a rabbi has help from Hashem. Any rabbi who's God-fearing and it was, he was entrusted in rendering a Jewish verdict, halachic verdict, saying it's kosher, not kosher, this is what Hashem wants. If he's a God-fearing person, he has the help of Hashem. And he got straight to the point. 
And he was right. So this is the idea of the crown. The crown of Torah. It transcends just the logic and the brains and what's inside. It sits on top of the mind. It transcends the mind. This is the will of Hashem. And that's expressed in halach. How does Hashem want me to behave practically at this moment? That's halach. Which is enclosed in wisdom. Then comes the reasoning that explains the will. Some mitzvot, not all mitzvot are enclosed in, reading, in reason. There are the mitzvot, the chukim, that transcend reason. They never were enclosed in reason. They remained pure will. But the truth is, all the mitzvot are that way. Even the mitzvot, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, ultimately it's pure, the pure will of Hashem. That's the reason we don't steal or murder. Not because it makes sense, because it's logical. No, that's not the reason. Today, the university logic will justify murder and terrorism, and especially if it's against Jews. Logic With logic, you can justify anything. It was the great intellectuals of the 20th century that justified eugenics. Some of the greatest writers, Bernard Shaw and some of the greatest intellectual lights, were eugenicists. The precursors of Hitler. We have to get rid of the weak and, the, and those who don't earn their, their keep. And, and uh, today it's, a, it's called by a different name. Today it's called Planned Parenthood. It's all the same agenda, the same Nazi agenda of, uh, of population control. Which uh, some of our billionaires are spending billions of dollars on population control. So this, this is justification, justification for the worst thing. So it's ultimately the reason why you do the right thing is because Hashem wants it. Hashem says, don't steal, don't steal. Hashem says, life is holy, life is holy. Hashem says, don't murder. But some mitzvot were enclosed in reason. But all the reasoning in the world, that doesn't exhaust it's interesting, the Hebrew word for reason is tam. Tam also means a taste. That all the reasons and all the explanations for every mitzvah that we have is just a little taste. That doesn't exhaust, that's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is it's, it's divine, it's infinite, it's Hashem's will. It's beyond reasoning. But Hashem enclosed His will in reasoning, in the logic of Torah. But what's inside of it, it's really the will of Hashem which is clothed in his wisdom. Thus, in addition to the fact that the Torah is Hashem's wisdom, which in its descent in the downward progression of world becomes the shrine of the Holy of Holies for the Shekhinah, there is the additional quality of it being supernal, supernal will, which is even loftier than wisdom. This is uniquely found in the Halakha and in the Mitzvah as they are expressions of the supernal will. So this is the superiority of a rabbi, even over a Rashi Shiva, someone who gives brilliant lectures and Talmud, analysis, because the rabbi deals with halacha, with real life, with mitzvot, how Hashem wants you to live, how Hashem wants, what Hashem wants you to do now, at this moment, what's the right thing to do. So you're dealing with something that's superior. You're dealing with the will of Hashem, which is loftier and transcendent and is infinite than the brilliant analysis and the logic and the explanations. 
which is the internal, that's the mind, that's the brain, that's the, the logic of Torah. But the will of Hashem, this is halacha. And they, Hashem's will and wisdom, are united with the light of the Ein Sof in a perfect union. Further, to an earlier statement that Torah derives from, from supernal wisdom, the Alter Rebbe will now say that the oral law also emanates from, from that source. Hashem founded the earth with wisdom. This refers to the oral law that is derived from supernal wisdom as it is written in the Zohar. The father, Chachma, begot the daughter, Malchut, as is written, Malchut, the mouse, which we call the oral law. The ultimate expression is through the oral law, because without the oral law, you really have no idea how to do the mitzvah. You really have no idea what Hashem wants you to do. The written, the written law, the Torah, is written very succinct. It's almost only a hint. It's almost like a, a note of what you're supposed to do. But I, I don't get the whole picture. It says in the Torah, put on tefillin, if you just read the written Torah, you have no clue. It says you should have mezuzahs on your doorpost. Well, we visited one of our ten trips to Israel, solidarity trips, community trips. We visited the Shomronim, who live in Shechem. And um, they only believe in the written Torah. And they have a mezuzah. We went to see their priest in their temple. They have a mezuzah. So they have a mezuzah on top of the door. <laughs> Literally. They have a sukkah, indoor sukkah. Where does it say you have to have an outdoor sukkah? <laughs> they have a sukkah. I mean, they take everything literally. It says, in Kippur you have to fast. So they told us. that Their babies fast. So the first year they yell and scream. If you imagine a baby fasting for 24 hours. And then they get used to it. By them there's no concept that life takes precedence. It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah clearly that life takes precedence over a mitzvah. So, you know, you can be sick and you can be dying. You'll die. You're not going to eat on Yom Kippur. By us, we have the oral tradition. So the oral tradition says, no, if life takes precedence. The Torah says you should live. It's a living Torah, not a Torah of death. So life takes precedence of anything. But they don't have that, that tradition. So they take everything, everything literally. So the only way to really know what Hashem wants is only as it's expressed in Eretz. Eretz is the lowest. Eretz is Malchus, so it's the oral Torah, which explains and you know, takes the seed of Chachma, takes the initial seed, and you plant it in the ground, and then you have a full-grown tree, a, a tree that blossoms with all the details and the fruits and the branches and the twigs and the leaves. The Chachma is just a seed. The written Torah is just a seed. But to take that seed... It's only when you plant it in the ground. And then, suddenly, now you, now you have all the details. Now, you, now you're able to, now you know exactly what Hashem wants. How you do the mitzvah. So, so this is where Hashem is found today. Where is Hashem manifest today? He says in the four cubits of Allah. The Jew studies Torah. And he studies Allah. And halacha is, of course, part of the oral Torah, because only with the oral Torah are you able to derive the halacha, are you able to come to halacha. And that's where Hashem is manifest. That's where Hashem is revealed.
Hashem's will, which is infinite. So a Jew, by a Jew studying halacha, you draw down Hashem, just like Hashem Shekhinah was drawn into the Holy of Holies. Hashem's holiness was drawn into the Holy of Holies. And through the Holy of Holies, Hashem's Shekhinah was drawn into the world. So too, what could contain Hashem today? When a Jew sits, even if he sits alone and he studies Torah, especially halachic of Torah, he's studying the will of Hashem, he's drawing down the infinite. He's drawing down Hashem into this world. He's drawing down that holiness. So a Jew has that ability. A Jew is given this ability. That when a Jew studies Torah, you become the holy of holies that draws down Hashem's will. And Hashem and His will are one, and His wisdom. Hashem's infinite self, you draw down that holiness into the world. So you become a light that lights up the world. A light that lights up the darkness, that brings light into the world. Without the light, the light is not there. Without the light, the light is not there. It's dark. When you, you bring light into the darkness, you bring Hashem into this world. By studying Torah. You become the holy of holies. The Shekhinah rests in now, when a holy Jew studies Torah, you sense that holiness. You can see the Shekhinah on their face. It radiates. Their presence, their whole being is Torah. Their whole being is studying Torah. And they're studying Torah, you know, in an egoless way. It's not about, it's, it's studying because it's divine. Because they're connecting with Hashem. They're connecting with the infinite. They're drawing down Hashem into this world. They become, they house the Holy of Holies. They become the Holy of Walking Holy of Holies, a walking candle that brings light and draws light into the world. Hashem's light and godliness into this world and blessing. So you can feel it. It's palpable. That's the idea of Shekhinah. Shekhinah is, it's, you can sense it. You can feel it. It's brought into this world. So that's the, the whole world today stands in Torah. Because every other institution was destroyed. The temple with the sacrifices destroyed. Most of the mitzvah today are not applicable. The overwhelming majority of mitzvah are not applicable to. Prophecy came to an end, the era of prophecy, besides a few select individuals. What's the only thing that's indestructible? It was never destroyed. There's no destruction. Torah especially halach. So when the Jew studies Torah today, this is our Holy of Holies. This is our temple. This is what we have today. We don't have the physical temple. We don't have the Holy of Holies. And we don't have... But what we do have is when you study Torah, and especially when you study halach, and he says halach the Torah is keser, all the mitzvot. Because the mitzvah of studying Torah is not only to study the laws that are applicable today. When you study Torah... You could study all 613 mitzvot together with the seven rabbinic mitzvot. That's why the Rebbe spoke so strongly and instituted the idea of studying Maimonides. What's so unique about Maimonides is that Maimonides captures the entire oral Torah, the entire Torah, explaining all 613 mitzvot, including the seven mitzvot, the seven rabbinic mitzvot. So when the Jew studies Maimonides, he captured the whole crown. The whole will of Hashem is captured in one book. There is no other book like it in the whole it was ever written before or after that captures the whole entire Torah, the crown, the will of Hashem. So when a Jew studies Maimonides, and he studies the Halacha, and he studies all 613 mitzvot, this is our Holy of Holies today. 
Even though we don't have a temple, we learn about the temple. We don't have sacrifices, we learn about sacrifices. We learn about all 613 mitzvahs. We don't have Mashiach, we learn about Mashiach also. We don't have the redemption, we learn about the redemption also. We learn about everything, because there's no destruction. And when a Jew studies, then you have the crown. When you study the halacha, you have the will of Hashem, you draw down the infinite light, you draw down that holiness that radiates into this world and, and brings blessing into the world and brings Hashem and lights up the darkness. So it's really up to us. And this is the vehicle. This is the way. We don't have any other way. We don't have the Holy of Holies to draw down. This is all we have. It's all Hashem left. But this, there's no destruction. There's no limit. You can study anything. You can study laws that are applicable, not applicable. There's no limits. And you don't only have to study about Pesach and Pesach. You can study Pesach in the middle of Sukkot. And the sacrifices you can only bring during the day. But when you study sacrifices, you can study it even at night. There's no limitation. When you study the will of Hashem, when you study, there's no, there's no limitation of time and space. Wherever you are, you don't even have to be in Israel. A Jew sitting in Australia studying Torah draws down Hashem's Shechina and brings Hashem's radiance into this world. And he becomes a holy of holies, a walking holy of holies. In the middle of Australia. So this is the Kesser. This is the crown. Yeah. Okay. The Torah was given by Hashem. Right. But the oral Torah was also given by Hashem. Simultaneously. At Sinai, Moshe received the written Torah together with the oral Torah. Because otherwise the Torah is a closed book. The Torah is here to teach you how to live. There's 613 instructions how to live. You're clueless. You read the Torah, you have no clue. How do you keep Shabbos? How do you put on film? What, how, what, when, where? The Torah is very vague. It just gives you uh, succinctly a hint. It doesn't, so without the oral tradition, the Torah makes no sense. For example, you have an Ezra writes that the first mitzvah was given to the Jewish people is when they were in Egypt, Right before they left Egypt, Rosh Chodesh Nisan is to sanctify the new moon. The Torah doesn't give me any instructions. How, what, when, where, who. And this is the foundation of everything. All the holidays is based on what the Jewish Supreme Court deciding when is the new moon. So such a major event and the Torah doesn't give me any instructions. So obviously, the Torah just writes briefly one point. The essence of the mitzvah. And the details were given simultaneously to Moshe to be transmitted orally. And there's a reason for that. Because the Torah is meant to be transmitted via live experience. Parent to child, you have to live it. It's not book knowledge. It's live knowledge. It's not just transmitting an idea, a concept. It's transmitting a life, how you live it. And, you know, you, every bone in your body absorbs it. Every part of you absorbs it by seeing how your parents are living it and doing it. So it's meant to be taught by, through real-life transmission, not just book knowledge. That's why you're not allowed to write down the oral tra- tradition. It was only later on, in later generations, when they saw that it was an emergency. We had no choice. So therefore we had to write it down. Otherwise the Torah would long be forgotten, God forbid. The way the Torah was meant to be transmitted ultimately is the real life transmission. So that's why it's oral. But it was the same Torah. It's given to Moses at Sinai. 
It's been transmitted from generation to generation. Maimonides gives us a counting of 40. There are 40 generations from Moses till the closing of the Talmud, Rabbi, Rabbi Ati, which was like the end of the Jewish Supreme Court. The Talmud effectively is the last Jewish Supreme Court. Whatever the Talmud decides is binding on every single Jew, because that's the collection of all the rabbis together. So he makes a list. Moses, Joshua, um, Pinchas, Eli, Shmuel. He makes a whole list, 40. Um, Achi, uh, David, Achi Ashiloini, Elijah, Elisha, Yehoyada, Zechariah, Hosea. He goes a whole list of 40, 40 rabbis all the way down to Mara. So this was transmitted, the oral tradition was transmitted from one generation to the next. So how do these people, how can they observe these people we spoke about in the Eretz world? That if, if it's just by the, the written word... Well, they, they denied the oral tradition and, and ultimately they, they left the Jewish people. They disconnected themselves from the Jewish people. And there's only a few hundred left. It's not... But they, they, it's a relic. They're Jews. Not really. At this point, no. They totally... They don't never follow the Jewish law and they became totally assimilated. And uh, They're not really Jewish because they don't really follow... It. As it is, they were really converts. They were not really genuine converts. It's, it's, the whole origin is questionable, but no, they disconnected themselves from the Jewish people, and now they're down to a few hundred. You know. Do they consider themselves Orthodox Jewish? They consider themselves Jewish. They follow their Torah, they read the Torah, but, but they're not. And they don't have that blessing, you know, it's not like a vibrant culture that the Jewish people are alive all over the world and thriving. Here's a little, a uh, few hundred people that you know, that are following the tradition in their original place. They never left their original place. Shechem. You know, the mountains there. Shechem. Um. So if anything goes in a different direction, they still follow the Torah? Yeah, but it's, it's, but it's, a, it's, a, it's not the correct version of the Torah. You see, throughout Jewish history, any Jew disconnected themselves from the Torah ultimately disappeared. Disappeared from history. Every Jew that's alive today, every last Jew that's alive today, all 14 million, no matter how distant, no matter how alienated, assimilated they are, they're great-grandparents. Just three, four generations. Without any interruption, going back all the way to Abraham, were faithful Jews, observant Jews, through thick and thin fire and water. And that's why the Jews are such a small minority, because many Jews got lost over time. There were pogroms, there were holocausts, but also some Jews broke away. And ultimately, you'll never find a fifth generation reform. It's very rare. Because by that time, they're so assimilated, they're completely lost to the Jewish people. So every Jew that has survived, every Jew that's alive today who's Jewish, it's because our ancestors, without any interruption, followed the Torah. Not only the written Torah, the oral Torah. It's a package deal. It's one Torah. It's the same Torah. Like he just said, this is the will of Hashem. The ground, the earth, which is the oral tradition, takes the seed 
which is the written Torah, and develops it. Without the Torah, you don't have halacha. You don't know what Hashem wants. It's so unclear. So this is all, it's all the same Torah, it's the same God. And those who are, who are connected are plugged in and therefore have that eternal blessing. But those who disconnected, who were disconnected, got lost. The dance continues. But, you know, some people drop out of the dance. The dance continues. The dance is eternal. The Jewish dance is eternal. But there were individuals who dropped out for one reason or the other, and they were lost. How did the Jewish people survive, you know, the religious, orthodox Jewish people survived during all these programs? Oh, that's exactly what we're learning about here, because of the Torah. The Torah, there's no corruption, there's no destruction, there's no diminishing. The Torah is what keeps us young, vibrant, fresh, connected. No, they weren't allowed to practice. They weren't, well, I mean... They, they practice no matter what, through great self-sacrifice. They never stopped practicing. Um, they were ridiculed, they were... It was difficult, but we, they did not abandon their Jewishness. They continued to practice. They were subjugated, they had to pay taxes, and they were subjugated, but no one could subjugate the Jewish soul. Internally, we always felt free because we're connected through the Torah, we're connected to Hashem. And that, no one could touch that connection. And, you know, when a Jew studies Torah, not only you study Torah to get to heaven, when you study Torah, you are in heaven. So it lifts you above the whole fray. You're connecting with Hashem, you're one with Hashem, it transcends time, space. There's no difference. Exile, not exile. You're free. And no one can touch you. When you're studying Torah, this is our refuge. This is our, this is our holy of holies. This is our temple that we take with us wherever we go. Wherever a Jew is, anywhere in the world, in your home, in your office, wherever you are, you study Torah. This is your refuge. You're creating a temple. A place where Hashem, you're drawing Hashem's presence into your office, into your home, into this world through your Torah. You're drawing that light, that infinite light. That's, that's what a Jew does. And this is what kept us. That's what, every Jew that's alive today, it's because our ancestors, great-grandparent, great-great-grandparent, without any interruption for 3,800 years, lived the Torah, studied the Torah, lived the Torah. And that's the secret of Jewish survival. We're people of the book. This is our secret. There's no destruction. Just like Torah, there's no destruction. There's no corruption, there's no destruction, there's no diminishing. On the contrary, with every exile, Torah just exploded. The Babylonian exile, we had the Talmud. The Spanish Inquisition, we had the Kabbalah. The Ari. With Chalmanitsky, Shabtai Tzvi, we had the Baal Shem Tov. After the Holocaust, we had the greatest explosion of Torah. 5,000 Chabad houses all over the world. Judaism flourishing literally in every corner of the world. Jewish books published every language of the world. Tanya on the web. In Korean. <laughs> in Korean? Korean. The president, the president of North Korea. <laughs> Maybe he's studying Tanya. He should, should, should study Tanya. He should. <laughs> but so there's an explosion of an awareness of knowledge of the Yiddishkeit of Hashem like never before. 
So Torah, there's no diminishing, <laughs> only deepening and intensifying. This is our secret. This is what keeps us young, keeps us fresh, keeps us vigorous. We haven't lost our edge. Uh, this is just the beginning. Another question. <clears throat> Why did Hashem separate the written Torah and the oral Torah? Why is it too... Exactly, for that reason. Because the, the Torah is supposed to be transmitted live. He didn't want it to be written. You were not allowed to write the oral Torah. The only reason they wrote down the mission and the Talmud is because it was an emergency. They had no choice. But that wasn't the initial plan. The initial plan was... Ideally, that Torah, the oral tradition should not be written down. It should be transmitted orally. Face-to-face. Real live transmission. Because something gets lost in book. You know, book knowledge is not the same. As but isn't there a danger of uh, oral transmission, of aiding to or leading out? Well, that's why Maimonides lists the 40, the chain of transmission. These were the greatest rabbis. And each of these rabbis was the head of the Jewish Supreme Court. And they were the, or the leaders of their generation. So they received it faithfully from the previous, who received it faithfully from the previous. So it was handed down by the holiest people from generation to generation and by the, the body of the Jewish Supreme Court, which was the greatest rabbis and prophets and leaders. And, and they faithfully received it and faithfully transmitted it to the next generation. So it was a very tight chain of transmission. This is not just... Even the Kabbalah, the word Kabbalah means to receive. It's a transmission that we've received. How do we know that there are ten svirot, not eleven, not nine? Ultimately, it's not a logical thing. Ultimately, it's a transmission that we've received from Moses and even before that. So this is, this is the way Judaism is transmitted. It's by way of transmission. The Baal Shem Tov's teacher, Baal Shem Tov's teacher was Achi Ashilani, one of the most special, unique part of the of this chain of transmission. Uh, of, of transmission was the seventh, the seventh in line of the transmission after David, and he is the one who anointed Elijah the prophet, and he saw Moses. He was a child, He was a teenager when he left Egypt. He lived five hundred years. He was the master of the Yechida of the fifth level, the essence of the soul. And he taught the Baal Shem Tov. He was his teacher for ten years. He used to see him sometimes as soul, sometimes he saw him, he came in a bodily form and he taught it. So you're talking about the whole Hasidic teachings, the source is a direct transmission from someone who was there at Sinai, who lived through from Sinai, from Egypt, all the way to Elijah the prophet, King David, King Solomon, and on, beyond. He was the one who appointed the Ravan Benavat to be king. So you're dealing here a transmission that was, you know, that's direct. That's why in Judaism the transmission is so important. Like the Rebbe. Where did the Rebbe get his teachings? From his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. Who heard it from his father. Who heard it from his father. The Alter Rebbe. Who heard it from his teacher, Rabbi Dover. His spiritual father heard it from his spiritual grandfather, heard it from the Abdullah, heard it from the Balshamtav. The Balshamtav heard it from Achi Ashilani. So it's a direct line transmission. It's not I'm making things up. A Jew can't just come and make things up. The Torah is not just, oh, well, it sounds good to me. It's not just a canvas where you can just express your creative ideas. It's not about you. It's about transmitting the will of Hashem, the divine, the infinite. 
that transcends human logic and reasoning. So the first question is, what's the Messiah? What's the Kabbalah? Where did he get this from? Who is your teacher? You have to be very faithful to transmit exactly, word for word, down to the last letter, what did you hear? Not just your brilliant interpretation, but what's the actual transmission? What did Hashem say? And then you can explain it to the best of your ability. But you have to be faithful to that live transmission. And you see by the Alter Rebbe, every word in the Tanya, every letter, every word, is a reference to somewhere in the Torah. It's not just, you know, even the language. And the Rebbe, the Rebbe, you see it clearly in the Rebbe's talks. He would annotate it. He would write a source for everything he said. And every word, everything is a quote from something. From It's not just, when you say something in Torah, you have to prove it. Where does it say? Show me. Where does it say? Where's the source? Who says this? Not just your brilliant idea, that's beautiful, but what's it based on? What's it founded on? What's the tradition? So this is the, the respect that we have to have for the oral tradition, because it's a, it's a tradition that's been transmitted faithfully. So not, not just a human being makes it up. Oral tradition doesn't mean rabbis make things up. It's, it's, it's transmitted faithfully. And someone who receives it faithfully when a new issue comes up, a new questions come up, he knows, and we trust him, that he'll be truthful and faithful to the original to find what's the real answer. What does Hashem, what would Hashem say in this case? Based on everything that I know and everything that I've learned, and based on the methods that I've been taught, how to find out the right answer. And he, he won't sleep at night. He'll be filled with trepidation. Maybe I'm making a mistake. Maybe I'm mixing my own ego into this. Maybe I'm distorting it. Maybe I'm not, I'm not uh, telling the truth. So he'll pray to Hashem that he should, he should get it right. He's a God-fearing Jew. This is the qualification of a rabbi, not just someone who's brilliant. Brilliance is not enough. In Judaism, brilliance is not enough. We don't respect brilliance per se. Brilliance is not going to get you anywhere. It's brilliance coupled with... Seichel. Seichel. Brilliance coupled with God-fearing Jew, a genuine Jew a sincere Jew, a humble Jew. That's why humility is so, such a, an essential quality. Why Moses, the one who received a Torah, he was the most humble person that lived. Should have said he's, he's the most brilliant person that lived. No, that's not his essential quality. The essential quality is, why was he the one chosen to receive the Torah? Because he was the most humble person that lived. Because when you approach Torah, you're approaching something that's divine. The oral tradition is not a man-made thing. You're dealing with it with the divine. The oral tradition just spells out what the divine will is. You're dealing with the divine, with the infinite. You approach it with awe. Approach it with, with, with respect, with awe, with humility. How can I, a finite human being, no matter how brilliant I am, how can I interpret and start putting my own interpretations? And It's about truth. It's about finding the truth. It's not about to prove my brilliance, to sharpen my brain. It's not a mental exercise, intellectual exercise. It's the truth. What does Hashem want of me now? And that's why the Rebbe, the Moses of the generation, he's the most humble Jew. He's the most God-fearing Jew. He's the one who will find the right answer because he's the most humble and most God-fearing Jew.
So he'll have that help from Hashem to be able to, at every issue, he'll be able to find the truth, find the divine truth, the divine will. That's why you come to a Rebbe and you ask him questions. Should I buy the house? Shouldn't I buy the house? Is a shidduch a good shidduch, not a good shidduch? Because the Rebbe, you're gonna, you want to get the divine answer. I'm, I'm, not coming, I'm not coming to a human being to get what a human being thinks. I couldn't care less what a human being thinks. No matter how great he is. Very smart, very nice, but <laughs> it's my life. You come, tell me what, what would, what's the divine will? What does Hashem want of me to do at this moment? So it's not just a question of halacha. It's a question of business. A question as I go about my, my daily life. What would Hashem want of me at this moment? What's my mission in life? What does Hashem want of me? Is this the right thing to do? Is it not the right thing to do? So the Rebbe has no ego. He's not coming to give you, to show. There's, there's, no, there's no agendas. He's just it's pure. Like mother's milk. He's coming to tell you what Hashem wants of this is the These are the rabbis of the oral tradition. These are the, these are the, this is the chain of transmission. So all the way from Moses, starting with Abraham and Moses, down to the Rebbe. It's one line of transmission. It's one God and one will and one it's infinite. It's not continuing. Well, Mashiach has to come. Oh, so that's, that's <laughs> the... So the sikhs that I get every week from this is oral law. This is the oral yeah? This is absolutely the Rebbe is. Is this is the this is part of the oral tradition? Of course, the rabbis of the generation. They are transmitting the Torah and they are showing us how the Torah is relevant and applicable today. How you take this whole Torah and how you live today? What you have to do today? What your mission is? What's the urgent uh, mission for this moment? Yeah. So I better go back and read again because. <laughs> I'm just reading. I'm just. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful thing, but I'm, I, I didn't realize that it's. Uh, I'm here. I'm reading oral Torah explained. Exactly, you're reading the will of Hashem, as it applies today, to the here and now, to, to me, to you and I, right now. So th- this is the transmission. And it's only through the rabbis, it's only through this transmission, it's only through the oral Torah that we can really answer this question and really find out the truth. What does Hashem want of me today? Otherwise, you're stuck in, in, you know, in, in limbo. You're stuck in no man's land. And you're not doing what Hashem wants you to do. You're not living where Hashem wants you to live. What do you mean by God-fearing? God-fearing is... They, you're in awe. You realize what you're being asked. When a rabbi is asked a question, he's not. He's being asked, "Tell me what would God tell me at this moment?" I am representing God. I have to tell you the truth. What's the truth? What would Hashem say to this in this question? I can't be lazy about it. I can't just be nonchalant. Okay, so I make a mistake, I make a mistake. What do you mean you make a mistake and make a mistake? Your life is on the line. You, you, you're, you're representing the truth. You're representing the divine truth. You're representing Hashem. Because the person who comes to you shares your belief that everything is in the Torah. The Torah is divine. The Torah is infinite. The Torah is the blueprint for life. Every question that comes up, you will find guidance in the Torah. And he's coming to the rabbi, please help me find 
because you were trained, you know how to interpret the Torah to find the right answer for every question that comes up. So find me the right answer. What is the truth? What am I supposed to do? Whether it's financial issues or whether it's life and death issues. What does the Torah tell me to do? What's the right thing to do? So you have to come up with the right answer because you're representing the, the divine truth. If that doesn't give you butterflies in your stomach, then, then you better quit. You, don't, you shouldn't be a rabbi. <laughs> you're in the wrong job. You know, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe once encouraged one of his chassidim to be a shaykhet, to be a ritual slaughterer. And he says, Rebbe, I don't want to. I'm afraid. You know, God forbid, if you get it wrong, you're going to feed the Jew non-kosher food. I, I can't take that responsibility. The previous Rebbe said, who else should be a ritual slaughterer? A Jew is not afraid. <laughs> That's the qualification. You are a perfect candidate. You won't sleep at night. You're going to be worried. So you're going to make sure, first you're going to make sure to learn all the laws, to be sharp. And you'll make sure to be careful and, and, and scrutinize and make sure that everything should be... And Hashem will bless you because, because you're God-fearing, because you're afraid and you're God-fearing, that you'll, you'll, He'll guide you, that you'll have that divine help, that you'll, you'll do the right thing. So it's the same as with a rabbi, a genuine rabbi, who's God-fearing. Otherwise, he should quit. He has no business being a rabbi. That's why a rabbi can't be arrogant or haughty. Arrogant, haughty. It's not about you. What about you? Get over yourself. <laughs> With all due respect, I don't care what you say. I really couldn't. It's very, it may be interesting, but that's not what I'm. That's not what you're here for. You come to rabbi. I want to hear the truth. I want to hear the word of Hashem, the divine truth. I want to hear what Hashem says, not what you say. <laughs> so any rabbi worth his salt. As the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe once said, he said, one of the things the Rebbe's would say, Hasidic discourses, like the Rebbe said to Tanya. He says, to say Hasidic discourses, very, I can say a Hasidic discourse. But to say a Hasidic discourse that my father wants me to say, he says, uh, you know, my eyes has to, has to have, have, to, have to creep out of my head. It's, it's, you know, to, to transmit the Torah, the divine, when the Rebbe says a Hasidic discourse, it's like Hashem is speaking through him. You know, it's, it's, you, have to, you have to live it, you have to be it, you have to mean it. You have to, it's, it's a whole different thing. It's not just saying a brilliant explanation, a nice, interesting explanation. You're transmitting the word of Hashem. Then you're in awe. You realize the gravity of the moment. So if a Jew realizes, when you study Torah, you become a holy of holies. And you become, you draw down Hashem Shechina, just like Hashem was present in the holy of holies, you realize the gravity of the moment. It's not just, uh, you know, take a book, it's like I'm reading a novel. You're studying Torah. There's a holiness here. There's a gravity. There's something real is happening. Something. So you, you treat it with that respect, with that awe. Not just studying physics or math or science, reading a nice text. This is, this is divine. Then it's holy. You approach it differently. You approach it with humility. You approach it with sanctity. And, and you're going to sharpen your brain because you're, you're going to approach it honestly. So even if it's something that you think you know, you're going to double check and triple check and go over it again and again and again Am I being honest? Is this the real explanation? You're going to go deeper and deeper because you care about it. Something you care about, you go very deep. Not superficial. I can't approach it superficially. I care too much about this. It's too important. 
there's too much importance attached to it. It's, it's, it's uh, the gravity. So of the moment, so I, I'm going to really apply every ounce of energy that I have to really go in depth and clarify it again. Let me double check. Let me make sure that I got this right. And think about it and break your head. So you're going to discover depth. You're going to discover clarity. And with Hashem's help, you'll discover the truth. The halacha. That's the special blessing that a rabbi has. To be able to find out what Hashem really wants. And to get to the point And to meet the center at every time. Always find the center. Always get bullseye. To get bullseye, you need help. So a rabbi is God-fearing, has that help. A rabbi doesn't, is not God-fearing, should quit. A rabbi thinks that a rabbi is being a career, like having a career. I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, and I'm a rabbi. You have no business being rabbi. Quit. It's a danger. For a moment, that basically rabbi is something else. Well, we don't have to go to reform movement. <laughs> but let's let's talk the positive. Yeah, I don't understand the reform movement. Let's talk the positive. I'm talking about reform. You don't have to go to reform conservative. They don't believe in the whole thing. I'm talking about orthodox rabbi, a person who thinks that it's a career. You, what are you doing? You're in the wrong business. <laughs> Being a rabbi is not a career. You are a representative of Hashem. You are carrying the kesa, the crown of Hashem. You are the holy of holies. You're drawing Hashem into this world. It's a career. It's about truth. It's about godliness. It's about holiness. It's about with trepidation. And the truth is, today, without Hasidus, it's almost impossible to really feel this way. Because if you don't study the Tanya, we're studying chapter 53 in the Tanya, so you understand what halach is, you understand what the, what the will of Hashem, what happens when you study halacha. You, so you realize this is, this is the gravity of it, the, this, the reality of it. The, it's a whole different story, it's a whole different thing, it's a whole different experience. You approach it differently. But if you don't study it, then it's just it's a question of brilliance. You know, then it becomes like studying math or science or showing how brilliant I am. You know, I have a good mind. I have a good legal mind. Let me go into the rabbinate and I'll excel and I'll prove myself and I'll, I'll be exceptional and people will honor me and respect me. And it's all about me. It's all about ego. Nothing to do with Hashem. What about the generation of Hasidim that, like a lot of my grandchildren, that never saw the Rebbe? Where is their... Strength coming from, uh, all right, I'm praising it wrong, but you, you were by the Rebbe, your whole adult, your young adult life, and, and, and his strength came, came through to you, and all, all the others. I wish, I wish. <laughs> okay, but where, where is that coming from now? Where do your children get it from? And, you know, and your I, have, I have to say, it's, it's a miracle. Because in some ways my children are a lot more connected to the Rebbe than I am. I can't explain it logically. But uh, our children are even better than us. And it's amazing. I mean, I think it's one of the greatest miracles of the Rebbe. You see how the Rebbe is, is alive, spiritually alive. That uh, a young generation has never seen him. They have this tremendous passion, enthusiasm, connection. They get it. They, they're, they're with it. They're... They're into it. It's an amazing thing. I think it's the ultimate miracle. 
you know, it's the most, it's, it's the most, I, I just sit and wonder. I mean, I just, I watch the, I watch my son and, and his friends and this. But they see tapes. Yeah, but, but, I know, it's but, not the but same it's a lot, but no, person. but it's a lot, by them it's a live, it's a live relationship, it's mm. a live connection, they're into it, it's an amazing, I think it's an amazing thing, it's one of the greatest miracles. But I agree with you, it's an abnormal situation. This is not meant to continue. Mashiach, what's meant to happen is Mashiach has to come. This is a completely abnormal situation. Let's not get carried away and think, wow, it's wonderful, the Rebbe is more alive than before Gimel Tamas, look at it. Chabad is growing and the young boys and the young girls, it's amazing, the dedication and the devotion and, and they're so alive as Jews, as Hasidim, it's just, it's, it's a wonder. But let's not get carried away and say, oh, it's wonderful, this can continue forever, God forbid, indefinitely. No, God forbid, this is an, a completely abnormal situation. This never happened before in history, not only in Jewish history, in human history. From Adam, the first man, till the Rebbe, we never had a moment that you can't see the tzaddik with your physical eyes. So this situation is completely abnormal. Like everything else that's abnormal that's happening in the world, both positive and negative. So we're living in a very abnormal situation. It's called the twilight zone. And this is the last moment before candle lighting, before Shabbos enters. So we're literally at the threshold, literally at the last moment. And we can't wait. And we're crying and yelling and screaming and turning to Hashem and saying... Enough already. We, we don't want to continue like this. This is not normal. Why shouldn't our children see, see the Rebbe like we were able to see the Rebbe? And why shouldn't we be able to see the Rebbe? For 3,800 years, the Jewish people had to see the Rebbe. Now, all of a sudden, we are so great that we don't have to see, <laughs> see a Rebbe? I mean, I mean come on. Who, who are we kidding? So, we're not making peace with this status quo. We're not making peace. But at the same time, it's an astounding, astonishing miracle. It's amazing. You look at the children, it's the biggest miracle of the Rebbe. You see the life, more alive than ever, more vital and deeper, more genuine, more sincere, clearer. It's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed from my children. So they're getting the Rebbe clearer than we've been? Absolutely, I see it. You don't Absolutely. think anything is not from the household, from you and, and, and your wife? <laughs> Listen, uh, you know, they're asking him to be. I, 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 That's okay. Because, no, but he's not going to do that. Because it wouldn't be the same, you know. It's it's like that would be like second hand. But I see their relationship is like first hand. It's, it's an amazing, and in many ways they have they have a stronger relationship than we had. So, so it's it's an amazing thing. I think they have a direct relationship with the Rebbe. You know, as well. You know, listen. I'm not, we're not taking away the responsibility as parents. Of course, you transmit whatever you, your own. No, experiences. I think, yeah, I think you but nevertheless, I think the Rebbe has a direct connection with the younger generation. It's a miracle. I don't know how, I don't know what, when, where, but it's a fact. One of my grandsons, when I, when I just talked to him, it's like he grew up with the Rebbe. He's, <laughs> yes, not only they watch the tapes and they see the videos, but they, they really, no, it's alive. The spirit, the right, same. the spirit, they have that yeah. spirit and they have that, it's amazing, it's yeah. amazing. Talks to me about the Rebbe as if he He's was sitting there. right yeah. Like, and he never saw the Rebbe in his life. He's 22. No, he was. I think it's in his mother's arms, I think. <laughs> right, he doesn't remember. So it's a miracle. It's a, uh, there's no way to explain it. It's one of the most astounding miracles. Uh, in that sense, the Rebbe is alive. It's amazing. So, But on the other hand, we need the real thing. You know, um, That's Mashiach. That's what the Rebbe wanted us to the man Mashiach, we want to yell to shout, to need it. Now. What is, <laughs> now. 
when I, I still get lost with when the Mashiach comes, who is the Mashiach? Somebody is coming from God or? Mashiach is a Jewish leader, the leader of the generation. And when the time comes, and if the generation merits, he will be the leader of that generation. Uh, that's a, that has always been is the he tradition. Be coming from God? He's a human being, a flesh and blood. No, 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 a human being. Like Moses was a human being. He wore diapers when he was young. He sucked his mother's milk. He was a human being, a flesh and blood. That's, that's the Jewish idea. Of a tzaddik is a human being. So he's going to be the leader of... He is the leader of the generation, and the leader of the generation is Mashiach. When, when Mashiach comes in that generation, when, you know, when the time comes, he's the leader. That has always been the Jewish traditional understanding of Mashiach. Mashiach is not someone hiding out in a cave in Africa and suddenly going to make an appearance. You know, he's hiding out in the mikveh in Borough Park suddenly going to make an appearance. Mashiach is a real leader. Either like, Dan, like the Talmud gives the examples, like Daniel, who was a leader, royalty, um, Rabbi Huda the prince, also associated with kings and royalty, and Roman emperor, and he was the greatest rabbi, so the leader of the generation. So Mashiach is a leader, a caliber, a leader, the leader of the generation, like Moses, the Moses of the, of the generation, the leader of the generation. A descendant of King David, the family of David, which all the great leaders so of the Jewish people. So preventing him from coming? Well, Hashem, Hashem has to make that decision. Uh, ostensibly, we are preventing it. <laughs> Whatever the reason, I, you know. Basically, that's the answer, that we're preventing it. He's ready to come. The question is, are we ready? <laughs> are we ready to accept him? Are we, are we ready for Mashiach? Are we ready to change? Are we ready to... Mashiach is ready. Are we ready? Do we want Mashiach to come? Are we excited about Mashiach coming? What are we doing about... Are we doing something about it? Are we starting to live? Would you say, like, your children are, are doing everything right for the Mashiach? Yeah. The question is, am I doing, am I doing it? Okay. Sheikh has to come for all of us, not, not just for my children. There are millions of Jews that aren't even thinking about that, though. I mean, that's what the rabbi means. We're holding it up. Inside. Now, this may sound strange. Does the Mashiach know that he's the Mashiach at this point? Well, Mashiach probably knows that he's the potential, and Mashiach probably knows that he is Mashiach, but, but it's up to Hashem. Hashem runs this world, and when Hashem has to decide, and Hashem hasn't so far, Hashem is enjoying the gullus a little too much. Um, he hasn't decided to bring this to an end, to conclude the exile and start the redemption. So we can pray, and we can hope, and we can be active and do whatever we can, but ultimately, all that we do is just to evoke a response from Hashem, just like He took the Jews out of Egypt. Okay. That hasn't happened yet, obviously. It's definitely going to be um, very good for the Jewish people. What for the whole, world. the whole world. The whole world. It will be good for the whole world. Mashiach is going to redeem all six billion people. They all become going to become righteous Gentiles. All going to every religion and every facet of life should be praying for him to come. Because yeah. we, the world is in a, not in a good way. On one hand. On the other hand, we have a lot of good things happening. You know. Oh, yeah revolutions yeah. and positive revolutions so there's a lot of and your children the, that generation <laughs> right? that I right. see and I um, I model that yeah. I think it's, it's amazing. amazing it is amazing so 
on one hand is positive we're living that's why it's like a twilight zone there's there's unbelievably positive things astonishing no one would ever expect who would ever expect without seeing the Rebbe you would have this whole generation it's it's no one if someone told told it to you it's even possible you would say it's impossible and yet it's a fact on the other hand, you have all the negative things that are happening that are also astounding and astonishing and negative. So it's like a twilight zone. Tragedies and negative it, it, corruption and decadence and degeneration to an extreme that's just stupefying, mind-boggling, and just completely irrational, completely illogical, and completely, you know, like the 50th level of impurity. On the other hand, you have the 50th level of purity. Simultaneously, that's a, it's like a twilight zone. But this is the moment before Mashiach. This is exactly how the Torah describes the moment before Mashiach. It's, it's a very tumultuous, confusing time, and it's really up to us to, to really... Where did I hear that someone said, if you can find three people that really want Mashiach, he would come? The Rebbe said, no, the Rebbe said that it was but tenders. But from you? No, no, oh, tenders, ten, yeah. Tenders. That really want Mashiach. He would come. He would come. How many people? Ten. Ten, Ten Jews who genuinely, genuinely wanted and cried out to Hashem, Mashiach, to come, he would come. That's what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe doesn't play around with the words. So it had to be like ten Rebbe's. It had to be ten people in that... Okay. In, in that. But the Rebbe represents the Jewish people, and he wanted it, but it's not enough. <laughs> we have to want it. You know... Mashiach is a get, you know, if we want him, he'll come. We'll conclude. There's a beautiful story that Rabbi Salavechik, Rabbi Yosheber Salavechik, the father of Chaim Brisker, um, before he was town in Brisk, he was town somewhere else. And the people of Brisk came to him, a delegation, and he said, we, uh, we want you to be our rabbi. And he refused. But he said, Rebbe, we have a signed petition here. 15,000 Jews signed the petition, begging you, pleading with you to come to be the rabbi of God. He starts packing his bags. He says, the Rebbe, his wife says, what happened? I thought you don't want to go. He says, yeah, I don't. But 15,000 Jews wrote it down the paper. How can I refuse? So when the Chavetz Chaim heard the story, he was crying. He says, no? Can you imagine if 15,000 Jews signed <laughs> we want Mashiach now? <laughs> he couldn't refuse. If Jews really want and really feel the urgency and really miss and want it and genuinely, how can he say no? But it's like a relationship. If you turn your back, I can't come. If you're not interested, I'm not going to come. Mashiach is not going to impose himself. You have to want it. So if Hashem sees, that's what he said, the Rebbe said, if there were ten Jews who genuinely wanted, Hashem cannot refuse. So Mashiach is waiting for the signal from Hashem. He can't do it. Hashem has to give the green light. Hashem hasn't given the green light yet, for whatever reason. The fact is, He has not given the green light. His redemption has not come. has not materialized. But hopefully by next week, tonight, Mashiach will come. Maybe we'll have a... Celebration next week. himself will finish Tanya. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at lessonsintanya.com.